Hello again. I'm Rab Houston, Professor of Modern History in the University of St Andrews. And these are my podcasts on the history of British psychiatry since the Renaissance. We're now into the fourth block or section of podcasts. The block comprises four podcasts and they're loosely grouped around the theme How have therapies for mental ailments changed over time? This podcast is called Holistic and Heroic Remedies and don't worry, I'll explain what those are as we go through. In the present day, treatments for mental illness revolve principally around drugs, sometimes accompanied by some form of psychological therapy. For centuries, medical practitioners relied mainly on treating physical symptoms, while recognising that mind and body were connected. Where possible, they offered some kind of what we would call counselling. In this section of podcasts, I'm going to look at what therapies were available, picking out both continuities and change over five centuries. Now, let me say at the outset that I'm not going to give you a narrative of progress, a narrative from darkness to light, though that is how a lot of the history of psychiatry is presented. Instead, I take a more relativistic point of view. I'd like to look at why perfectly intelligent and sympathetic people use therapies, some of which we now regard as utterly wrong. The reason, you might have guessed from previous podcasts, is partly because scientific paradigms changed only very slowly over the centuries. And also because, whatever we might think, the therapies available really did produce some effect. Had they been thought entirely useless, they wouldn't have persisted so long. You'll remember from the last block of podcasts that the dominant medical theory across early modern Europe was, as it had been since the 2nd century AD, an evolution of classical Greek thinking developed by Galen. In this scheme, human bodies comprised elements or humours that interacted with their environment. And in that scheme, mind could affect body just as somatic problems could have psychological manifestations. The other thing you need to know at the start is that all therapies were, until quite recently, holistic. In other words, each individual was treated as quite distinct from any other, even when they displayed similar signs and symptoms. Medicine in the past was an integrated system where mind and body were connected and where discrete psychiatric categories for most purposes did not exist. Thus, medical practice meant taking into account all sorts of personal information, information which might bear on achieving a successful treatment outcome. Influences included the conjunction of the stars at birth, occupation, 
religious leanings and lifestyle. I wonder if you did a double take there when you heard me list astrology. If you did, then please stick with me for a moment, because medieval people believed everything in the cosmos was connected, and that its workings could be understood as a series of analogies and oppositions. So it's not just the mind and body were linked, everything in heaven and earth was connected. Thus, for example, the planet Saturn had a sympathy with black bile, being cold and dry, according to the ancients. The planet Saturn, therefore, also had a sympathy with melancholy, whereas the Sun, which was taken to be hot and dry, and Jupiter, seen as hot and wet, counteracted it. For this reason, influential Renaissance writers suggested all sorts of therapies for melancholy. They included wearing yellow clothes, having sunflowers in your room, eating saffron, listening to music, and so on. All of these were ways to cultivate the correspondence and to counterbalance melancholy or low spirits. So this theory is based on correspondences. It extends to the body. For example, each bodily organ corresponded with a sign of the zodiac. And I think it's clear that medicine was probably the main application of astrology. Astrology in the, in the late medieval and early modern period was a truly serious science, widely used throughout society. Thus, the brain was cold and wet like the moon, whose lunar phases could influence the mind. From this particular correspondence, we get the word lunatic. Now, the aim of all medieval and early modern medicine was to understand and assist natural forces, rather than trying to control or change them. The remedies that were handed down from Galen in the 2nd century AD included what were called heroic therapies. Now, heroic in this context simply means aggressive. And they included things like blistering, pur purging, emetics, and bloodletting, phlebotomy. These therapies depleted elements in the body held to be behind illness. For example, blistering used caustic substances to draw out bile. Now, ancient Greek theories continued to influence medicine well into the early modern era. Yet changes were undeniably taking place. One important innovation of the 17th century was Paracelsus' theory that bodies were chemical organisms. Where Galenic remedies followed the principle of opposites, chemical or Paracelsian ones were governed by the doctrine of signatures. And what that means is that plants, animals or minerals, or minerals with certain characteristics similar to the afflicted part of the body could promote healing.
Central to all early modern therapies for mental disorders was physical restraint achieved by a number of means. This came out of a somatic view of mental disorder which stated that a passive body was a sign-off and a way to an ordered normal mind. Similarly, shock therapies such as sudden immersion in cold water were based on the idea that an artificial crisis inflicted on the body could help restore the mind. Therapies like these also relied partly on distraction, as did other popular remedies such as cold baths and sensory deprivation. One of the most famous physical remedies was the Cork physician William Saunders Halloran's circulating, he called it the circulating chair, it was actually a spinning chair. It was based on an idea by a British private madhouse keeper, Joseph Mason Cork, uh, Cox, I beg your pardon, Joseph Mason Cox. The chair is the illustration for next week's podcast. Both restraint and shock obviously had an element of fear attached to them for patients. But that fear too was thought to be, to be therapeutic in the sense that, that it could concentrate the mind and so elicit sane words and behaviour. Now that system of remedies in its various forms was highly sophisticated. Uh, Gallen's system of medicine was um, extremely scholarly. It was highly sophisticated and it attracted much scholarly attention. Paracelsus too, in the late 16th and 17th centuries, represented the scientific cutting edge, as did theories based on nerves in the 18th century, which I talked about in the last block of podcasts. So there is mainstream medicine as practiced by physicians and surgeons and apothecaries. But there were also folk remedies. And those folk, folk remedies proved remarkably enduring. One was a belief in the healing power of water, an idea shared both by Christians and pagans. Even after the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century banned them as superstitious, British healing wells attracted visitors with all sorts of ailments, including madness. The image for this week's podcast is a bronze bell. What on earth is a bronze bell doing in a series of podcasts on the history of psychiatry? Well, uh, the bronze bell is called St. Saint, Saint Philan's Bell, and it was placed on the head for the cure of insanity. Patron saint of the mentally ill, St. Philan gave his name to a holy site on the River Tay in Scotland at Strathfillan. It's near the present-day village of uh, Tindrum in Perthshire. Now, at this well, sufferers underwent ritual immersion. Maniacs were tied up, put on a stone bed in a ruined chapel overnight, and finally washed in the well, all in the hope of cure. That ritual is documented in the 16th century, and it was still in use in the 19th century. And in the 19th century, hydropathic cures made a comeback. They were very popular in upmarket private hospitals, asylums, 
and places euphemistically known as rest homes across Britain and Ireland. Indeed, holy wells remained important in largely Catholic Ireland. There is, for example, a valley in County Kerry called Glanagalt, the Glen of the Lunatics, where drinking the water of Tubernagalt, the well of the lunatics, was thought to have therapeutic value. We've nearly done for today. You might remember from the last section of podcasts some of the landmarks in understanding mental problems. To summarise, the late 17th and 18th centuries saw the displacement of humoral explanations of mental problems by apparently more modern alternatives. Chemical interpretations of normal and pathological physiology, mechanical ones employing mathematics or physics, and early neurological explanations. However, practical therapies changed much less rapidly than these theoretical, or largely scholarly, scientific understandings, whose significance is more obvious with hindsight than it was at the time. All these therapies are physical, in other words, they touch the body. You might well be wondering where psychological help comes in. It did exist, and I'll talk about it next week. Do please join me for that podcast.